That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com/slash The Bill Press Show. And uh, Donald Trump wins on uh, getting a deal signed. He will sign it today, and then also declare an emergency declaration. That's what Republicans agreed to to get him to sign this deal—a bad deal for the American people. And a deal the Republican Party will someday live to regret. Hey, what do you say, everybody? It's great to see you today, uh, even on a Friday. Good to be here. Friday, February 15. Hope you had a good Valentine's Day. Uh, And uh, great to be back with you here. As we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, as always, with the news of the day. Most of the news centered around that uh, bum deal that uh, too many Democrats went along with. Um, The entire Congress went along with. Uh, giving President Trump not the $5.7 billion he wanted for the wall, but $1.375 for 55 miles of new fencing along the wall. And, of course, Donald Trump says, okay, I'll take that. Then I'll declare an emergency and uh, round up another $7 billion for a total of $8 billion to build his wall, which he says he's going to do whether Congress will give him the money for it or not which does raise the question, does the Constitution really matter anymore? Or can Congress just cede their constitutional powers, surrender their constitutional powers to the president? You know damn well that's going to be before the Supreme Court before long. All of that to talk about lots more going on as well. Amazon pulling out of New York City without even saying hello, goodbye. Is that a win for the left or a defeat for 25,000 jobs? We'll talk about that and a lot more and get your take on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, Get ready. But first. This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. You just mentioned Amazon. We are going to talk about Amazon today during the show. Uh, How about this, though? Remember last year we were all upset because Amazon made uh, $5.6 billion in profits, and they paid 
Zero taxes on that. Zero taxes. $5.6 billion in profits is pretty good. Not as good as last year, this past year, when they made $11 billion in profits. Almost doubling. Oh, Yeah, almost doubling their profits in 2018. So you can imagine they're going to pay a lot more in taxes, right? Wrong. They paid zero dollars in taxes yet again. Two years in a row, Amazon has paid zero in taxes. It's amazing. It's amazing. How can they get away with that? I mean, you know, making all that money, right? There's, there should be a minimum corporate tax. The country is broken. Yeah. The country is 100% broken. Right. And when you hear people like... AOC and other uh, progressives that talk about raising taxes on uh, a, a billion, billionaires of billionaires in this country. Think about that for a second. All yeah. that money they made and not one dime in taxes. Hey, while we're talking about grotesque wealth, let's talk about the richest cities in America. Uh, Bloomberg has put together a list of the communities that have the highest household income. And number one is its probably not one that you would have thought of. Although no. maybe you will, but I'll give you a hint. It's in California. No. Yeah, no, I. I would think San Francisco, but it may be something like Santa Barbara, Atherton, California. Oh yeah, that Atherton, makes sense. Atherton, very wealthy suburb south of San Francisco. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah outside of San Francisco right. is what I can say. The average household income—that's that, where the Silicon Valley. Exactly. Is. Yes, yeah. they point that out of of, of how many of the uh, Silicon yeah. Valley people live there. Average household income there: four hundred fifty thousand six hundred ninety-six dollars. That's the average. That's mm-hmm. the average there. Uh, Scarsdale, New York, is number two. Cherry Hills, Colorado, is number three. Los Altos Hill, California, is number four, and Hill. Hillsboro, California, is number five. So California, three out of the top five there, Bill. Yeah, but they're all, yeah, those are all suburbs of San Francisco. They're all Silicon Valley money. Yeah. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, what do you say on a Friday, February 15? Hello, hello, everybody. The Bill Press Show with a big deal, and it's a bad deal, right? Heard about the Green New Deal? This is the Black Bad Deal that they passed yesterday. Uh, Late last night, the uh, United States House in joining the Senate and approving this deal at 10 o'clock East Coast time this morning. uh, The president will step out into the Rose Garden, sign that border deal, and then on top of that, declare a national emergency, which, of course, only exists in his mind, not in reality. Hello, everybody. It's the Bill Press Show, Friday, February 15, live from our nation's capital and our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. With all of you, it's good to have you part of the program and great to see you today online on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Great to see you on television, on Free Speech TV, coast to coast, and how about it? Here we are on the radio, uh, statewide in Indiana, on Indiana Talks, and all over the city of Chicago and surrounding areas of Chicago, the great neighborhoods there around Chicago, great little towns and cities surrounding Chicago. In the Chicago area, we're there with you on WCPT 
And thanks for joining us. And you know, uh, hey, Chicago, Amazon may be heading your way after they pulled out, abruptly pulled out of New York yesterday. Uh, and they're on the mayor of uh, uh, Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, and uh, Mr. J.V. Pritzker, the new governor of Illinois, both said, hey, uh, Amazon, take another look at us. We'll be a little more friendly maybe than the New Yorkers were. By the way, it's, it I was really— I hope they don't agree to give them as much oh, giveaway tax dollars as New York had agreed to give them. It's amazing how that that story broke uh, yesterday about Amazon pulling out of New York and how many different governors around the country put out statements saying, oh, we have contacted Amazon uh, uh, yeah, to, right. to try uh-huh. and bring them back here. It's uh, the power that Amazon has is crazy. Right. Hey, For look better me or over. Worse. Uh, hey, look me over. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it started, we, and we start today with the, uh, by the way, and thank you for being with us again. Don't forget, we want to hear from you, your comment on all the news of the day. Uh, whether it's the border deal or Amazon pulling out of New York or uh, the other news of the day, a rumor that uh, Joe Biden is all set to jump in. He's telling people now he's 95% sure. Uh, your comments always welcome on Twitter, uh, at BP Show. So it was uh, late last night. The uh, lights were on on the top of the Capitol until uh, after I went to bed, uh, where they finally had a vote in the House. It was pretty lopsided. Here's uh, the announcement of the vote last night. It passed the Senate earlier in the day, moves over to the House, and... On this vote, the yeas are 300, the nays are 128. The conference report is adopted. Without objection, a motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. Uh, and as I mentioned at the very top, the president said he will sign the bill. He went back and forth yesterday in the middle of, after telling everybody he was okay. This is like a replay of how we got to the shutdown in the first place. He suddenly yesterday said, maybe I won't sign it, which sent uh, Mitch McConnell into a tailspin. He was on the phone three times with the president yesterday trying to convince the president, you've got to do this. And then, but by the way, part of the waffling there, it was interesting because uh, Ann Coulter sent out a tweet, yeah. saying, you know, if you sign this or you agree to this right. deal that is not full funding for the wall, it's over. Right, meaning their support for the president will be done. Which and is that BS? Of probably, course. I agree. Yeah. It's probably BS, but it also. Probably scared Trump. Well, yeah, and Laura Ingram put out a tweet saying this is a total sham. Don't sign it. So then he starts waffling, and he finally came around. And But listen, the the guy, he knew what he was doing. He gets Mitch McConnell. He says, okay, I'll sign it, Mitch, if you support my emergency declaration. And Mitch McConnell comes out and, of course, basically waves the white flag. I've just had an opportunity to speak with President Trump, and he, I would say to all my colleagues, has indicated he's prepared to sign the bill. He will also be issuing a national emergency declaration at the same time. Right. Now, remember, uh, and we'll get to some more voices later, uh, this is the Mitch McConnell who, for a year, has been saying, or at least six months, however long we've been talking about this, no emergency declaration because that's Congress's job to appropriate funds, the president can't just willy-nilly pull money from all over the place and spend it the way he wants to. That's Congress's. This was Mitch McConnell's been saying all along, right? Yesterday, 
suddenly singing a different tune. I've indicated to him that I'm going to prepare, I'm going to support the National Emergency Declaration. What a total, total sellout. Total sellout. Uh, Chuck Schumer, good for him, hanging tough, calling this emergency declaration exactly what it is. If President Trump decides to go forward with a disaster declaration, he'll be making a tremendous mistake. Declaring a national emergency would be a lawless act. And Speaker Pelosi uh, joining in, uh, saying that there's no way Democrats are going to stand by and allow this end run around the Constitution, which she's referring to here, and you'll hear her mention, Article 1 of the Constitution, which says it's the Congress's job to appropriate money. The president asks for money for different things. The Congress decides what agencies get how much money for what purposes, period. Where we go from here will be for us all to honor the Constitution, especially Article 1, uh, especially the uh, system of checks and balances. We will not have an end run around the Congress of the United States. So let's take a look at this emergency declaration from a couple of points of view. First of all, uh, President said the other day, oh, everybody does it. They've done it hundreds of times. Obama did it hundreds of times. George Bush did it hundreds of times. Not true. Um, I didn't realize that it's actually fairly recent in our history that this um, provision was passed by the Congress uh, giving the president this emergency declaration powers. By the way, I think if they wanted to do something good for the country, they'd take it away. Uh, But at any rate, they passed this emergency powers in 1976. Okay, so it's been used in the last, um, so that's... uh, Peter, help me out here. 24 and 19, less than 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's been used a total of 58 times. So about once a year. But it's been used for, for the most part, um, well, famously it was used by Barack Obama once for the swine flu. Yeah. In 2009, I believe it was. Uh, Yes. And it was used by George W. Bush once after 9-11. Yeah. Um, it has otherwise been used for putting um, foreign policy, international crises, putting sanctions on country, stopping weapon sales from the United States to certain countries or whatever, that, that level of thing. It has never, never, never been used to build something. It's never been used by any president to say, you know, I want to build a new federal building or I want to build... A wall, for example. So this would be very unusual and the first time ever that an emergency declaration uh, has been used for this purpose, not to mention used for something that is in no way an emergency. I mean, the president says there's a national security and humanitarian crisis at the border. The fact is, as everybody has pointed out, you cannot dispute it. The fact is that Immigration across the southern border is at a 20 to a 40-year low. There ain't no national emergency. That's number one. Number two is the Constitution. We get to the constitutionality question. Can the president, can the Congress basically cede to the president and just surrender 
to the president. It's a it's fundraising authority uh, and it's appropriation budget authority, if you will, under the Constitution, Article One. I think the clear answer to that is no. Um, okay, don't take my word for it. How about taking the word of this great constitutional scholar, Donald Trump? Back in uh, 2014, the White House indicated that when the president couldn't get the Dreamers legislation through Congress, they were thinking that maybe he would use an emergency declaration, declare an emergency, to prevent ICE from deporting Dreamers. They never did, but it was talked about as a possibility, keeping all options on the table. At the time, Donald Trump said, condemned President Obama, calling it a very, very dangerous thing that should be overwritten easily by the Supreme Court. <laughs> Donald Trump said, he was tweeting even back then, he said it was this was an easy call for the Supreme Court because it should absolutely not pass muster in terms of constitutionality. Donald Trump there's in 2014. Always, there's always a tweet for this. Like yes. Every time that he says something, there's always a tweet that he wrote earlier that contradicts uh, it. And here's his tweet, November 20, 2014. Republicans must not allow President Obama to subvert the Constitution of the United <laughs> States for his own benefit and because he is unable to negotiate with Congress. Oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't that classic? Perfect. I mean, if that doesn't fit today, what does, right? Absolutely perfect. Now, wait a minute. It's not over yet. Donald Trump also said that if President Obama declared an emergency declaration, he should be impeached for it. Yes, he called for impeaching President Obama over an emergency declaration. Why? Because he said he certainly did something that was unconstitutional. Donald Trump, November 20, 2014. Sounds good to me. Impeach him. Hypocrite. <laughs> what a freaking hypocrite. It's just amazing. And you know what? Now look at these Republicans. And I'm going to tell you, they're going to rue the day. That's why there have been a lot of Republican voices who have spoken out uh, against this. Um, Senator Lisa Murkowski yesterday um, said she's long thought it was a bad idea. I've responded to that uh, for a long time, that I don't think that this is a, mat uh, a matter that should be declared a national emergency. And Rachel Maddow last night put together, her producers put together a little montage of Republican senators. These are all Republican senators uh, expressing their opposition. This is within most of them within the last couple of weeks. Their opposition to the idea of an emergency declaration. Listen up. I don't think it's a good Sorry, idea. Marco I think it would be a right terrible here. idea. I hope he doesn't do it. Well, I don't would think you it's fight him on it? Either. 
Sure, because I think that it's important. I would hate to see it. You know, using that act, it would be, in, in this instance, would be f f far larger act than has ever occurred in the past. So I'd, I'd prefer not. I think it's a dangerous uh, step. One, because of the precedent it sets. Two, uh, the president's going to get sued and it won't succeed in accomplishing uh, his goal. To me, it strikes, uh, strikes me as a not a good strategy. I hate the idea of, a, of an emergency because I always worry about that abuse with future presidents. I hope he doesn't go that far. I think it would be a mistake for the president to invoke his uh, national emergency powers for this purpose and that it would be of dubious constitutionality. Uh, and of course, add to those voices, as I mentioned earlier, Mitch McConnell, who was always the most outspoken opponent to an emergency declaration, who uh, surrendered yesterday and waved the white flag. And let me tell you something. Every one of those Republican voices you heard, not one of them is going to do a damn thing when President Obama announces his President Trump. God, President Obama, I wish. <laughs> yeah, uh, you get the two of them confused. When, the let me just, just call him Donald Trump, not <laughs> yeah, President. Right, right. When Donald Trump announces his emergency declaration today, they will just simply roll over and say, well, you know, he's, he's got to do what he's got to do. And they'll come up with some BS excuse. For, for, again, once again, caving into Trump. But let me tell you, they will rue the day they did this because this sets, this sets a very dangerous precedent. Uh, it is the Congress abdicating power. It's the Congress giving more power to the executive, uh, upsetting the balance of powers. And once they do so, as we've seen with the War Powers Act, they'll never get it back. We have not had Congress has not exercised its unique power under the Constitution to declare war, has not exercised it since the World, World War II. The Korean War was the first time a president sent American troops into war without a declaration of Congress, Harry Truman. Every president since then has done it, even Barack Obama, and the Congress has just looked the other way and rolled over. But they've held on to their powers of the purse until now. And so they're allowing this one president to say, no, here's my pet project. And if you won't give me money for my pet project, then I'll declare a national emergency and I'll just run around you and find the money somewhere else and do whatever the hell I want. That's exactly what they're doing with Donald Trump. And if you let Donald Trump do that, there is no way. They may piss and moan or scream uh, with, with when some Democratic president wants to do it, but there's no way they'll be able to stop him unless the Supreme Court stops Donald Trump, of course. But if they let Donald Trump get away with this, and uh, several Democrats have said this, just wait. Just wait till, you know, mention it. President Joe Biden, President Beto O'Rourke, I don't know, President Julian Castro has some pet project that they want, Congress doesn't go along, whether it's a Democratic or Republican Congress, the president will just say, according to the Trump model here, that these Republicans, starting with Mitch McConnell, have agreed to, the president will just say, okay, I'll do, I'll do it my own way. I'll do it myself. I don't need you. I don't care how you vote. I don't pay any attention at all or give any weight to the United States Congress. That's exactly what's going on here. And so this is this is really a constitutional crisis. Uh, it will be challenged. You know that by no Republicans. Democrats will challenge it. 
Uh, it will go all the way to the Supreme Court. I believe that even this conservative, it's likely that even this conservative Supreme Court will see the dangers here and, and see how this does upend the Constitution and uphold the Constitution and not and reject basically Donald's emergency, Donald Trump's emergency declaration. But of course, that remains to be seen. By the way, not all Republicans are going to get on board with Donald Trump. Uh, a lot of them will. Yeah, but most of well, them will. Uh, it's rare that I ever read a positive tweet or a tweet that I agree with from Eric Erickson, a uh, terrible conservative commentator. Uh, absolutely. Uh, he tweeted yesterday, the president should not declare an emergency just because he did not get his way with Congress. This is a terrible precedent. He then went on to tweet, I'd rather a veto and a shutdown than an emergency declaration. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Veto it. And then if Congress, that would, I mean, that would be, by the way, at least normal procedure. President vetoes it, then Congress could either override his veto or not, or change it and come up with another plan, but whatever. Uh, well, good for Eric Erickson. By the way, he, of course, he's not a member of Congress. Right, sure, but, fair. <laughs> uh, uh, you watch. There will be not one Republican senator who's, who will be willing to join the Democrats in doing something. They may, again, piss and moan. They will not join the Democrats in filing a lawsuit to block this or taking this to the uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, and I know this is, I, I hate to be impolite, but can I just raise another issue? Uh, sure. Final, yeah, final point on this show. on this point? <laughs> yeah. Wasn't Mexico supposed to pay for the wall? <laughs> Why, again, are we having this damn debate in the first place? The promise was, I build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. Everybody's forgotten that and they're letting them get away with it. We are getting screwed. We are getting stuck with the cost of this stupid, unnecessary wall. Let Mexico pay. If Mexico won't, then we won't build it. At any rate, let's talk about Amazon. Man, I got to tell you, it uh, was a total stunner yesterday. By the way, one little footnote here. The person who called the mayor and the governor to say, we're pulling out, was, it was former Alexa. White House press oh. secretary... Jay Carney, yeah, who's the communications director, whatever, vice president for Amazon. Yeah. Uh, so we know how this went. Remember, there's a big search here. Every city in the country was slobbering all over Amazon trying to get them 50,000 jobs. And they ended up saying, okay, we're going to put half of them right here across the river in uh, Roslyn, uh, Virginia, and the other 25,000 in Long Island City, New York. Well, uh, Arlington, Roslyn, sort of went along. They've been making plans for it. In New York, it just stirred up a hornet's nest because the way it was done up there um, is that uh, Andrew Cuomo, governor, and Bill de Blasio, mayor, together cooked this up with Amazon without talking to the um, borough heads of Long Island or Queens uh, and without having any public meetings or kind of whatever. And they announced suddenly that this deal was coming through, the jobs were coming up here. They were giving Amazon $3 billion in subsidies. It's like, you know, when the city pays to build a new stadium. Yeah. $3 billion, billion dollars in improvements uh, for a company that paid zero taxes last year, federal taxes last year. 
And uh, to sweeten the deal, they put they were putting this luxury helipad right on the East River so Jeff Bezos could get in and out and visit his office there. Uh, anyhow, it turned people the wrong way, a lot of people. But, you know, th- to me that wasn't surprising, right? I mean, you can have local opposition. Amazon couldn't stand it. Couldn't stand the fact that not everybody was standing up and applauding. And so without sitting down and trying to work this out, without holding any public hearings to say, no, this is why this is good for you, right? Here's what we agree to do. Maybe um, we'll build this many new parks or we'll put up this money for schools or we will make sure that we'll do something so that rents don't skyrocket. That's one of the things people were worried about. Yeah, sure. Because, you know, in a lot of communities we've seen gentrification. This happened in San Francisco with Silicon Valley. Can't, you can't afford to buy in San Francisco now. New Yorkers were afraid of that. These new Amazon people would come in. Rents would go up. All the people living there now, a lot of them would have to flee. And also they point out that the subway system, which is so bad, I can tell you I was in it again yesterday at rush hour. Oh, man, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's crazy. Uh, and nothing's been done to improve the subways, and here they're giving this luxury helipad. So, I mean, they could have put some money up. We're going to put some money up to fix the subways. Boom, boom, boom. They did nothing of that. When they had any local opposition, they just pulled the plug and said, if you don't love us, if you don't slobber all over us, if you dare raise any questions about how wonderful this is going to be for what we're going to do to you, then we don't want to come here. And that's what they did yesterday. Um, the... Head of the opposition was a state senator from Queens, Michael Giron. Gironaris. Thank you. Gironaris. Gironaris. The news for Amazon is that they're not bigger than New York City, at least not yet. And Give uh, them a couple of years, by yeah, the way. Right. And Bill de Blasio, the, the mayor, uh, it's a defeat for him because he's one of the ones who put the deal together. By the way, Bill de Blasio, I have to say, who put the deal together for Amazon and yet says – they're such a bad company that he will not buy anything from them. Yes. New York City gave Amazon a real opportunity here. And all we asked was that they be a good neighbor and be part of the community. And clearly, uh, they weren't ready to do that. They didn't want to be a good neighbor, says the mayor, and they wouldn't sit down and talk with the locals and try to work out uh, any of these problems at all. There wasn't a shred of dialogue. Out of nowhere, they just took their ball and went home. You know, so I got to tell you, um, I'm mixed about this because I think 25,000 jobs in any community is is a good deal if they're good-paying jobs and union jobs and whatever. Uh, uh, it's hard to hard to say we don't want them. At the same time, you can't just roll over for this company without the company being part of the community. And certainly the way this deal was put forth without any local input was a big mistake on the part of uh, Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio, who just thought they could force this uh, on the community. So it was badly handled, I think, in the end. It's uh, it's an unfortunate result. But one thing it does show is, boy, the power of local grassroots organizing. Yeah. It, this Four months ago is when this was announced. Yeah. And they had not been part of the process, and people, they started just started having protests in the street. And they brought 
down Amazon. You know, amazing. This has been going on for over a year now, right? Amazon, they they sort of dangled, the whole search, the whole search. Yeah, they dangled right. this yeah. search. We're going to find somewhere in America to build the new headquarters, and then they remember when they narrowed it down and they named the different cities that they were looking at, and there were, there five, were several think, that they remember? were still looking yeah. at. Yeah, and it was all a ploy. To see who would give them the most, Absolutely. who would give them the sweetest yeah. deal. Yeah. And they just pitted these cities against each other to see who would uh, give them the most, which is really grotesque when you think about it. And totally. especially when you put it through the lens of what they've now done to New York, it's especially gross because now they're going to do this again to another city. You know, I mean, if they're going, I mean, if they're if they're still splitting up the headquarters, I doubt that they're going to put them all in here in, yeah. the, in, in yeah, Arlington right. area. They're still they're going to have to look for a, another headquarters. They're going to do this thing all over again. But you know, I've seen this play out with other cities and other companies where they have on a particular project or something. I was part of the, some of the negotiations on things like that way back when I was working for Jer- Jerry Brown uh, in California. And you meet with the local city council, you meet with the board of supervisors, you, you hold community hearings, you get this input, right? And uh, and you work it out, right? Amazon, the arrogance of Amazon here is just stunning. They said, no, you love us 100% or we don't want anything to do with you. The, the clip walked out from Bill de Blasio that we just played, no dialogue, no phone call, right. no hey, we got some problems we need to address and work out. Right. None of that. Just no. we're going to take our ball and we're going to go home. On the other hand, I will say that Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio didn't do any of that either. True. Right. They just made a deal with Amazon, sprung it on the city, and the city says, Bop! hey, how about <laughs> us? All right. So there it is. Uh, and we'll see where they end up. <laughs> Maybe Chicago. Here we go. Uh, we're just getting started here on this Friday, February 15th. And big news, the Democratic National Committee has come up with a big announcement about where the first debates, how the first debates are going to be decided, when they're going to be held, who's going to participate, how do we decide that. So Sabrina Singh, Deputy Communications Director for the DNC, will join us to uh, tell us all about it. Give us a quick break and we'll be right back with you. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, you bet it is on a Friday, February 15. Uh, great to see you today. The Bill Press Show booming out to you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where we're brought to you today by the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, the so-called SMART Union. Now, when you put them all together, the SMART Union under President Joseph Sellers uh, members of the Smart Union giving a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. You bet. Check out their website at smart-union.org. We salute them, thank them for the support of the program. Welcome to the studio from the Democratic National Committee, Deputy Communications Director Sabrina Singh. It's nice to see you, Sabrina. Nice to see you. Thanks, Thanks for having for me on in. this Friday. Uh, good to see you, and uh, we can't wait to hear about the debates and all the decisions that have been made. Uh, but first, we want to uh, give a chance for our listeners and viewers to sound off about some of the things we've been talking about so far. 
Yes, indeed. As you can imagine, Bill, we got a lot of comments on Amazon pulling out of New York City. Uh, Smacky Pipe says, I wonder if the Amazon Prime annual cost will rise again as well. <laughs> uh, good point. Phil, uh, who is right here in Washington, D.C., our buddy Phil, says, reminds me of what happened to Disney in the 1990s. They announced that they were going to be building a theme park near Manassas, and local government oh, and residents way, rose yeah. up and ousted them. I remember yeah, that. I remember, yeah, I remember that, that, too. Story. Uh, and that would have been outrageous, right? Yeah. The Manassas countryside, sure. beautiful, and of course, huge historic value, right? They wouldn't uh, have turned into a theme park. KG says, congratulations, New York City. You just avoided a new homeless crisis. Uh, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people that talk about the impact that Amazon has on a situation uh, like that. There's also some comments on the wall, uh, of course, the other big story of the day. Uh, Chris says, if the Supreme Court gives their okay, it would nullify the Constitution then we should get rid of the Supreme Court altogether because without a constitution, we would no longer need the Supreme Court to determine what is constitutional. <laughs> Diane, Diane, Donald Trump, Diane, where'd that come from? <laughs> Donald Trump would love that. You got rid of the, the Congress and the Supreme Court? Yeah. That's the kind of country he wants. Yeah, right? yes, exactly. And and, and it's, by the way, it's the kind of country he thinks he lives in. And acts like he lives it's in. It's certainly the one he wishes he lived in. Yeah. Uh, if you have a comment on any topic at any time, you can find us on Twitter, at BP Show. Uh, uh, again, big question is, uh, to, to what extent will the um, Republicans in Congress, who, always, who have been saying for the last few months, no emergency declaration, now that Donald Trump is declaring one, uh, will they just go along with it, or will they be willing to... Uh, to take the president on and break with him on this issue. Um, I don't think you can count on them at all. We'll see, right? <laughs> uh, I think we know. <laughs> uh, they'll wave the white flag of surrender the way Mitch McConnell did yesterday. <laughs> all right. So, Sabrina Singh from the DNC, um, you, you know, when you, it's like when you get a marriage license, you have to go to the um, you know, city hall and you've got a file. So, if anybody's running for president, they have to come to the DNC and take out their application papers. How many candidates That's do you have? That's a great analogy. <laughs> How many candidates do you have? Uh, you know, right now, I think the field continues to grow. We're seeing candidates continue to announce. Uh, just last weekend, we saw Senator Klobuchar get in the race. So right now, we don't have a set field, which is exciting. Uh, but we're but gonna... you have eight or nine so eight or, far. Eight, eight or nine declared yeah. candidates. I wrote a column yesterday where I identified eight, and then I realized I uh, left off, um, I mean, declared. Declare. Already declared. Yeah. I left off John Delaney. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that, Congressman. <laughs> uh, so that would be nine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's not the end of the road, though. I don't think field, so. Huh? I think we anticipate that the field is going to continue growing. I think that... Uh, you know, th this is a big decision for candidates to make. It's a big decision for their families. So, you know, I think we're going to see candidates continue to announce um, through March and maybe even until April. And that's fine. You know, the DNC, we are prepared and ready to have a large historic field, a diverse field. And that's, I think, what's going to get our base excited. And, you know, we're preparing for these debates, as you said, and it's yeah. it's a very exciting time. So just, just uh, adding to that list, um, we do know uh, that among those who are still considering, uh, certainly Bernie, Senator Bernie mm -hmm. Sanders, yep. would not be surprised at all. Uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, I've been wondering whether his delay meant that he wasn't going to run after all. But yesterday, apparently, he told some people he was 95 percent there. Mm -hmm. 
uh, was making calls, raising money, trying to line up support. So yeah. it sounds like he's going to be there for sure. Uh, today, what's today? Friday. Yeah, today, Beto O'Rourke, who just had his big rally in right. Texas uh, the other night in El Paso, the competing rally for Donald Trump, he is appearing at uh, Madison, Wisconsin, the University of uh, Wisconsin yeah. in Madison, a hotbed of uh, youth activism for sure. Uh, and then tomorrow uh, appearing in Chicago. So That's right. He's definitely bouncing around there and looking like maybe more and more like a candidate. Um, I think the three that you mentioned, I mean, there's so many more that are, I think are going to continue yeah. to consider this big issue. Uh, decision and hopefully you know we'll have more candidates in the race by the end of the month or you know end of march who are we missing who else might we know that some of the ones we talked about have already dropped out but um they're the big three left i guess beto bernie and joe beto bernie and biden Biden. there you go yeah I mean, there are. I mean, there are a lot of others yeah like you know jeff merkley is one that i think of uh you know Bill de Blasio says he's still thinking about it. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not saying I think he's going to, but there there was a report last week that or this week that Michael Bloomberg. He was saying, yeah, Bloomberg. Whoa, another B. Another B. Bloomberg, yeah. Bernie, <laughs> Beto, and Biden. Yeah, there's still Sherrod Brown, of course. Another one. Yeah, five. <laughs> another B. That's right, Sherrod Brown. Right. Okay. All right. So, uh, all right. So we. See, don't it's an know. exciting field already. <laughs> it is. No, it's a very, very exciting field. It's just a little tangent here, sidebar. But uh, it was reported yesterday that the Trump campaign has started oppo research on three candidates that they consider the most viable. Mm-hmm. What do they know, right? Right. <laughs> but they're looking at Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and Cory Booker. So, I think they might have to widen their I, I uh, oppo research okay. a little bit. Now, so however many are in, uh, we're going to start the debates actually in 2019. Uh, your chairman has told us here on the show. But what are, we, what are we talking about now? So we're talking about the first debate being in June. And what we announced yesterday was the first debate will be a partnership with NBC, MSNBC, and Telemundo. And then the second debate will be a CNN debate. And this and is when will the second one be? July. July. We don't have set dates yet. All right. So we're talking June, uh, NBC, MS, and uh, Telemundo, mm-hmm. meaning they will televise it, right? They will televise it, and, and it will, will be cho- free live streaming as well. Okay. And they will choose the mo- uh, moderators, I guess. Yes. We don't, I don't think, have control over who right. they decide to pick. But what is historic about this is that it will be debates on consecutive nights, during the week, during prime time, and there's not going to be a so-called kids' table debate. We are picking the candidates at random, uh, so it will be eight and eight on the stage. Um, so it, the debate could be Tuesday and Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We haven't worked out the debate, uh, the the actual dates yet. So two nights back to back, back to back in prime time. All right, and you're sort of planning on sixteen candidates. I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're looking at. And, and you know, the candidates have to meet a pretty aggressive threshold. <laughs> they have to reach at least 1% in reputable polling, um, either in well, national or in a few states. And we've picked out some of those polls. Okay. Oh, uh-huh. slow, s- slow down. Yes. All right. So to get in this debate, uh-huh. right, you have to at least get 1% in the national polls. Mm-hmm. I could get 1% in a national you poll. You can be on the debate stage, Bill. 
I, I don't <laughs> want to be on the base base. What I mean is that's a pretty broad, that's a pretty wide open. Well, you know, you have to think a lot of these level, candidates don't have some of the name ID that a Bernie Sanders does. Right. So 1% is actually going to be tough for some really? candidates. Really? Well, when you think about how big the field is, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we anticipate that the field is going to continue to Peter, grow. Peter, check out Pete Buttigieg. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would think he and Julian Castro might be the lowest, right? But see if uh, on a name, on a national ID mm -hmm. now, I'd be surprised if they didn't, wouldn't score at least 1%. But, you know, and, and so that that is one criteria. I'm sure you've done the research we on this. We have, not, yes. Our team led by Mary Beth Cahill and, uh, you know, Tom great, Perez great as well. Right. Um, you know, they, they really put this together in a thoughtful manner. And so if you are not at that 1% threshold, another threshold is fundraising. Um, showing the support of grassroots fundraising. And we, uh, you know, consulted with a, a huge uh, Democratic digital firm, ActBlue. Um, that oh, ActBlue is a great, great, great. organization. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we, we have another debate threshold, uh, which is fundraising, and you have to show that at least 65,000 people are giving to your campaign across 20 different states. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that that is pretty robust, and that is going to be, um, you know, we're holding, you know, so... It's, you can't have all your donations coming from California or New York or Texas. You have to show a breadth of um, support across the country. And so, you know, we hope that these this di debate criteria is, um, we believe, fair and very transparent. And we're being, you know, completely forthright with all the facts and figures that we uh, want to establish for our first June debate. Um, and so we're really excited, and we think that our candidates can meet those goals. All right, so um, back to fundraising. So you're mm -hmm. saying grassroots, this is grassroots, grassroots fundraising. yep. Okay. What's your definition there? I mean, are you talking about contributions under $200? or? I don't uh, think we've set that yet, but we're talking about just showing a breadth of of grassroots fundraising and, and, and small dollar fundraising. That's what I, don't, I mean, small dollar. I, do I, I was yeah. looking for your definition of small, small dollar. dollar. Yeah, right. I, I don't think we've set that uh, usually, limit. Usually people say it's under 200. But, right. But right. I mean, I think, you know, if someone's really excited about a candidate and yeah. what, what, you know, well, they, they donate and multiple then, times. Too. Right. Exactly. And they, you know, want to buy the t-shirts or posters or whatever, you know, that can amount to more than under $200. So I think, um, you know, we're keeping that open. Um, but we want to make sure that we have candidates that are showing that they can fundraise across the country. Right. And again, you know, if you have a strong base in California or a strong base in New York, we want to make sure that, um, you know, you have support in from Idaho to Texas to Florida to Maine. Mm -hmm. We want to show. Uh, now, one thing you haven't mentioned. Mm -hmm. So those are the two criteria you have to, to uh -huh. two tests you have to meet. Right. right? Did we find out uh, uh, the name ID on um, Buddha Judge or is it? <laughs> Well, it I, I was looking around at different polls, right? It really yeah. just does depend on the mm -hmm. polls. Yeah. yeah. So, like, is he one percent uh, in any of them? Yeah, he is. He is in some. Yeah, yeah. he is in some. Yeah. So you're you're saying, but like an average of polls, I guess. Mm -hmm. huh? Yeah, and 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 closer to the debate, you know, we're gonna we I, I believe in what we put out. We have like a sample of like ten different polls that you know are are we will be looking at, but it has to be closer to the debate. Okay, uh, one, it's one, not going to be right now. It's going to be yeah, you know a month before. One thing, uh, yeah. What is your cutoff date? What people have to declare by, um, you know, let's say you're 
poll is or your debate is June fifteenth. Yeah. That they have to declare by June the first. We have not set a cutoff date, but I think candidates that want to get in. I mean, that's why the DNC announced our debate schedule so early. Candidates know that if they want to announce in late May that if they want to make it to the first debate, they're going to have to meet these debate thresholds. So that might adjust their announcement plans a little bit, which is why we wanted to announce early and be fair and transparent to everyone. And Mm -hmm. um, something that I think is really important that I know we touched on last time that I was here and I know Tom has talked about is that, you know, the first two debates are going to be completely random on who's on what stage. It's, It's literally going to be Uh, I mean, I'm using this as, you know, names being drawn out of a hat. I don't know if we're actually going to draw names out of a hat or how, you know, the randomized uh, pulling of names will be done. But uh, there's no JV varsity team. There's no kids table debate. It is going to be as fair. And and, because we want we want people to see the different candidates and, and, you know, uh, hear from all of them in a fair way. Um, I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I think. uh, Well, thank you. you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you. The the varsity and JV debate was not fair. Right. I mean, there were some really good people um, yeah. who were good candidates, meaning like Carly Fiorina, Lindsey Graham, who were in the JV debate, mm-hmm. who are as serious, certainly, as Rand Paul was. Right, right? or Jeb Bush. Or, or Jeb Bush or, yeah. or Chris Christie and could have, should have been and could have been on that same stage. I mean, I could see uh, <laughs> if I were a candidate – I mean, I would agree with the deal where you have, let's say you have 16, you know, you just put all 16 names in a hat and mm-hmm. the first eight that you pull yeah. go on day one and the next go, the on, next day go two, on day two yeah. or, or somehow have you mix them up as you pull them the names out of the hat. Right. I mean, it, it's sort of like, you know, the lottery, right? Right, right. You don't always win, but uh, you, of yeah. course you don't play, you don't win. Uh, but the one thing you haven't mentioned as a, as a test is... Um, Social media presence, which hmm. I thought might That's might an interesting factor. one. You know, how many followers they have on Twitter or whatever. Yeah. I'm not I, – I, I wonder if that were considered you know, uh, as I, a criterion. I don't know. Um, I think that, you know, social media following also is it, – it, I do think that is a tough metric um, because someone that doesn't have a huge social media following, like a, a Beto compared to – Oh, Beto does. Right. No, I, and that's <laughs> oh, what I'm saying. I see. I Compared yeah. to, uh, you know, some like a John Delaney. Um, or Castro. Or a Castro. Like, I, I don't know that yeah. that's totally fair um, mm-hmm. as, as a metric. I think that's something that should, you know, I think that is a great way to measure someone's reach. But I think for just our criteria and what we wanted to make it, you know, things that are achievable, um, we wanted to set it so that these are things that, you know, the fundraising work, it's 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 the same amount of work that every candidate is going to be putting in. It's going to be email fundraising. It's going to be traveling the country. Those are things that, you know, we can kind of measure. And then also polling, we can, you know, kind of measure that as well. Social media, is, it's a bit hard. It's a bit tougher, I think. Yeah. But it's not a bad, I mean, that's not a bad um, criteria to consider in the future. Uh, and so what response have you had? You know, we've had a really good response. I think people across the aisle, um, you know, operatives that worked on the Hillary campaign and the Bernie campaign have really applauded our debate process and transparency. Um, Same with the networks. Uh, You know, I think Tom held over 100 discussions uh, with different networks and, and media execs. 
again, and I, I know I've, I'm beating a dead horse here, but we really tried to be as fair and transparent as possible. And Where, so the response has okay. been positive. So June and July, mm -hmm. uh, consecutive nights, you don't have um, uh, the dates nailed down yet. Not yet. Right. Uh, location? Not yet. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Who decides that? You do or the network? I think there will be a probably a combination. Um that I, I, I think that needs to still be worked out. And that's, you know, that's always tougher to just get your location set. And I think the networks want to make sure that the accessibility is there. And so I think that will come later. And um, how many total debates? Twelve total debates, six and six. When you say 12, mm -hmm. so like the June debate, that's not two. That's one debate, right? Right. Two one nights. debate, two nights. Got it. So okay. there's a debate every month starting in June with the exception of August 2019 is when we do not have a debate. And then we go September, October, November, December, and then starting in 2020, we have debates every month as well. So June, July, boom, mm -hmm. month off, September, October, November, December, yep. and then that's six for yep. 2019, and then six through June, June. Yeah. 2020. It's going to be a busy, busy year. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Yeah. And at some point, you may get down to right. We're going to have one night because right. candidates will have dropped out. Exactly, and I think that that will happen naturally and over time. And I think that uh, you know what is exciting is that um, for the first two debates, I think people, the candidates, have their chance to make it their case to the American people. And if you're a candidate that might not be polling where you want, but you are meeting that grassroots fundraising threshold, this mm -hmm. is your opportunity to really you know boost yourself up and um, ha reach more people. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's a fair schedule, and um, I think it's going to be very exciting to watch it, yeah. to watch it develop. Twelve right? debates. I mean, that's a lot, uh, much more than we had in 2016. And so, uh, you know, that's why we want to make sure that everyone across the country has an opportunity to hear from different candidates, and that's why we're doing so many. You know, I think every They're year gonna, every yeah. or every election cycle we say this is the most important presidential election yeah. you've ever seen. <laughs> I think we can all agree that this yes. coming presidential election is, in fact, the most important presidential election we've ever seen. I mean, I know Tom said this in 2018 that our democracy was on the ballot, but it, it, it is, again, the same case in 2020. I mean, we cannot have four more years of Donald Trump. I think we are seeing how reckless he is being with by declaring a national emergency um, on, you know, just trying to get funding for his wall. We need a Democratic president. Uh, you know, in 2020, and I think we, I think we're on the path to do that. Right. Uh, I was going to ask you about the uh, the the declaration of the national emergency, which is going to happen this morning. We know it's going to right. happen, and Mr. McConnell's already agreed to go along. But this is something that the Republicans in Congress, um, in the Senate particularly, have been saying, for the most part, almost all of them across the board. Republicans have been yeah. saying, no. We like the president, but this is going too far. I and mean, now he's going to do it. Um, it is going too far. It's reckless. I mean, talk about we have a national emergency. I think, you know, there's a handful of issues that we can declare our national emergency. Just gun violence is one. Poverty levels, you know, of our ch children. Uh, you know, there, there are other cases to be made for national emergencies. Building a wall, a see-through slat wall, whatever he wants. Uh, first of all, we know Mexico's not paying for it. That was pretty clear, I think, the day Donald Trump became president. Mexico is never going to pay for this wall. But, you know, 55 days later from, you know, 
what we had a government in the government shutdown and almost a million people affected. We are nowhere. We, we are exactly where we could have been 55 days ago. Uh, you know, Donald Trump did not get the money for his wall or enough that he needed. And now he's trying to declare a national emergency and pull resources away from you know, other agencies. Now, uh, that's an ex- excellent point, which not too many people are making, which is why have the, sh- if, if he's going to do declare this a national emergency, right. you know, why have the go through the shutdown in the first place, right? For 35 days, right. the first one, and even, even threatening a second one. So but for those 35 days, all those people who were furloughed, some yeah. of them still haven't gotten their back pay. Right. Uh, but even if they did, what they had to go through, the pain and suffering they had to endure, and the uncertainty during that time. And not only that, all the money that this cost the American economy, yeah. you know, it's billions of dollars yeah. in lost wages and lost business because people couldn't get to work, they didn't have money right. to spend. All of that basically for nothing because he was going to do this emergency declaration no matter what, anyhow. It was for nothing. Right, totally, totally for nothing, right. All right, well, we had a lot of news out there on the, the debates. That's really great. I think you're going in the right direction. Great. Uh, can't wait to see how many more candidates you have in stage. <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, so it's uh, Democrats.org, where you can always follow the work of the DNC. From NBC News, John this Allen joins us is next. the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show, and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And at 10 o'clock this morning in the Rose Garden, Donald Trump is going to announce we got a deal. He's going to sign the deal. And then on top of that, he's going to make an emergency declaration because the deal doesn't give him the money that he wants. So he'll get it anyway. Uh, at least he's going to try. Hello, everybody. What do you say? On a Friday, it is Friday, February 15. Uh, this is the Bill Press Show. And as always, we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and our studio on Capitol Hill, uh, right in the heart of the action, where the House last night joining the Senate, a very lopsided vote in approving uh, the uh, budget spending bill, which includes $1.375 billion for 55, new, 55 miles of new fencing along the border, which is not what Donald Trump asked for, but he has said he's going to sign it and he'll make up, uh, use that money, plus another $7 billion he's going to find somewhere else, he says, for $8 billion to build his wall, whether Congress wants it or not. Uh, That and Amazon pulling out of New York and Joe Biden saying he's 95 percent sure he's going to jump in. My God, we got so much to talk about here with uh, John Allen from NBC News, who joins us in studio. Hello, John. Good morning, Bill. How are you? 
I'm good. Yeah, you're on top of all of this? Uh, yeah, I've got two phones ready to go. I know, I noticed here. I'm impressed. Um, I, a pink one and a black one. Yeah, I, I went to get a phone cover for my work phone, and they had two choices, like pink and black, and I had a black one for my personal phone, and I was like, yeah. I want to be able to distinguish easily, so I grabbed the pink one. Uh, very good. Respect. Nothing wrong with carrying around a pink phone. No, absolutely not. <laughs> All right. I think it's great. Uh, it's my signature color. <laughs> there you go. Look at this. I got my purple. We will uh, get into it with John and all of you and look forward to your comments on Twitter at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, it's over. It's over. The teacher strike in Denver lasted oh, by three the way. days, okay. and it is another big success by the teachers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's over. The teachers got what they were looking for. They were looking for a pay raise. It's a big part of the reason that they were striking. They will see that. They will see uh, a raise between 7% and 11% uh, in their base salaries, and there will be a whole different scheduling of how the salary is uh is uh, uh, given out to the teachers. They also were asking for um, stability in their salaries because it's weird the way that it sort of fluctuates there in, mm-hmm. in Colorado mm-hmm. and, and the different rates. They're going to get that all settled out. The teachers got what they wanted. It's over. Striking works is, Go. I think, the message of 2018 and 19 so far. If you strike, you can get things done. Just yep. ask the uh, air traffic controllers about the shutdown and also now the teachers as well. Talking about 2020, we just finished a long conversation about the uh, presidential primaries and the debates that are going to be happening around them. Kamala Harris just picked up a big endorsement yesterday. Congresswoman Barbara Lee huh, has really? already yeah. endorsed. I don't. I mean, not everybody's in the race yet, but she has endorsed Kamala Harris. Uh, Barbara Lee, who has been called the lefty conscience of the uh, House of Representatives. Says that she knows her. She's worked with her. She's seen her career in the East Bay in San Francisco for two decades. And she's ready to endorse her for president. Not totally surprising. There are two other members of Congress who have endorsed already from California. Ted Lieu and I forget the other one um, uh, who endorsed Kamala Harris. And both Barbara and Kamala from Oakland. Yeah. But, you know, Barbara's... Far, a lot farther to the left than Kamala, particularly on the law enforcement prosecution issues. I think this is a huge endorsement, not only in the endorsement itself, but in the fact that Barbara Lee's not going somewhere else. Yes. Because that would have been very hurtful to Kamala Harris. Yeah, yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah. For sure. That's, that's a big deal. Also a link to Shirley Chisholm. Barbara Lee worked for Shirley Chisholm. Um, Kamala Harris is trying to, I yep. think, a, at right. least implicitly sort of grab onto that mantle a little bit. And um, this- yeah, this helps her do that. Right. This is the Bill Press Show. It's an emergency, a national emergency. Well, not yet. But two hours from now, it will be. That's what Donald Trump says. He's going to sign it because he wants that wall, whether Congress will give it to him or not. If not, he'll find the money for it somewhere else. Hello, hello, everybody. On a Friday, February 15, here we are, the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital, our studio right in the heart of the action on Capitol Hill. 
booming out to you coast to coast on the radio, online, and on television. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. To catch up with the news of the day, start your day, uh, and uh, nobody better to bring us up to date, particularly on the political news of the day, uh, than our good friend John Allen, national reporter, political reporter for NBC News. Hello, John. Hi. Great to see you. Great to be here. I have to tell you, uh, it's a sad day for a lot of us. I'm I'm really in mourning today. I don't have my black stripe on, but uh, I'm still in, in, in mourning today. I mean, we lost one of the greats. John, we lost Lyndon LaRouche. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not laughing about what? anyone's death, but uh, but I'm. I, I, I just. I'm laughing because I don't know what to say about Lyndon Larouche. What can you say about? Does the so, Does the Larouche movement go on? That's the question. What a nutcase, Lyndon Larouche ran for president eight times. Uh, my first exposure to him uh, when I went this <laughs> hundred years ago, it seems 1976, almost. Uh, in New Hampshire with Jerry Brown, and we show up, you know, Jerry, the uncandidate, the exciting young governor of California. Uh, and so we had Jimmy Carter, I think Paul Songus at the time, I forget who else was running, right, in 76, Frank Church. But suddenly, all the activity in New Hampshire, all these kids there for this guy named Lyndon LaRouche that none of us had ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether that was the first time running or not, but that was, was his like, peak. It was like a cult, the Lyndon LaRouche cult, and he started way off on the left, and he ended up way off on the right. I mean, he's nutcase. You know, the, the, I think that the, you know he didn't leave the left. The left left him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the the legacy and the spirit of Lyndon LaRouche certainly lives on when you look at the the conspiracy theories that oh. he traded in and how it related to politics. And it really was all one big conspiracy in his eyes. And I think now a lot of that stuff has gone mainstream, man. It was really sort of a little Scientology of politics. Right? That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, crazy. Um, we just ended here uh, half an hour talking with Sabrina Singh from the DNC about the debates. Congratulations. NBC uh, is going to air, NBC and MSNBC and Telemundo, the first debate, which is going to be two nights back-to-back uh, in June. And I am personally responsible for securing – no, I, <laughs> I, I had nothing to do with securing uh, that spot. But, but what do you uh, think of this plan to have um, – she, she, she pointed out – that the criteria they put up for the candidates, right, is at least 1% in a sprinkling of national polls, of, of average of several national polls, and um, about raising at least $65,000 from, no, having 65,000 donors in 20 states in terms of grassroots fundraising uh, in order to get on the stage. And then which night you appear is going to be totally at random. I think? I think there are 65,000 ways in 20 states I could get in trouble for opining on, <laughs> oh. <laughs> on the Democratic uh, – the first Democratic debate uh, on NBC, MSNBC, and Telemundo. So okay. <laughs> I oh, feel yeah. like maybe that's just a bad place for me to be. Do you think it's fair? Uh I think that any I think that any set of rules that you came up with to determine which candidates were on the stage, any way that you tried to apportion this, given that there look like there are going to be a lot of different candidates, um, you, there could have, there would be criticism, and I think that they 
did everything that they possibly could to come up with something that would avoid criticism. I mean, I, it, I think yeah. they understood that they were under a microscope. Uh-huh. And so they're trying to do something that uh, that they believe will be seen as fair and particularly something that will be seen as not disadvantaging uh, or silencing candidates who have uh, public support but not necessarily huge money. Right. And they're also obviously doing everything they can to not to repeat some of the actions that drew criticism, I would call them mistakes, of the previous DNC in the terms of the number of debates and how they chose who appeared on which stage. Right. I mean, there's there's sort of an allegation. Right. I mean, the last time there's an allegation of the party rigging the process. I mean, you were the California State Party chairman, right, at at one point. Uh, That's what parties do, generally speaking, and have for a long time. Uh, So you look at a party process and you go, it's rigged. Well, that. That's what party. <laughs> right. I mean, you look at a government and you say, it looks like there's a conspiracy of this government because all of these agencies are working together to get things done. And it's like, well, yeah, then that's what a government is. The people have blessed right. these people to work together to try yeah. to get things but done. But if the DNC's job is to be level a level playing field for all candidates, if it, if it appears that it's really tilted toward one candidate, which it certainly did the last yeah. time, well, that's a problem. It, it has obviously become – basically the Democratic Party has become something that it was not always. That is to say it is now much more a uh, grassroots-driven rather than DNC member-driven organization. Yeah. Right? right. It, it used to be something where you, if you were yeah. a member in the term – in the idea of being Absolutely. part of that insider group, you had influence. Now it's a much more democratic, small-D democratic process where – being a member simply means being registered. Yeah. No, that's a very good insight. I think it's great, too, by the way. I also know a lot of friends of mine who are members of the DNC who are not happy with that. Sure. And who have been members of the DNC since I was a member 25 years ago. Right? I can tell you elected officials are not happy about losing superdelegate status until the uh, until the second ballot at the convention, if, if there's such a thing. Yeah, for example. And they are kind of laughing at the at the rules makers in Tom Perez because they now see a situation in which there's a second ballot uh, at the convention. You know, nobody wins a majority on the first ballot and the superdelegates actually become the deciders for the first time. So I, I think the answer to this question is that NBC and MSNBC have already agreed to the format. Um, but it does mean that for the networks, I mean, that's a big deal that you were giving up prime time two nights in a row. Uh, you know, right? You're gambling that there's enough interest two nights in a row for people to give up their. Well, I I don't speak for. I, NB- I, I, I mean, I, I just I yeah. I don't speak for for the networks right. um, uh, or any other piece of NBC or MSNBC. I would just say that I mean I think that there's uh, a lot of public interest, mm-hmm. um, and so to to some extent, you know, there's uh, whether or not there's an obligation. I think that there's uh, a. a uh, you know, a sort of decent decency approach to uh, public interest programming, and uh, you know, yeah. regardless of the ratings, there, uh, I think that um, that that's the kind of programming that a lot of people will be interested in, and and that the public yeah. should have access to. I'm excited about it. I think it'll be good, and I also like the fact that it'll be mi- there'll, there'll be a mix of candidates each night on the stage. I mean, if they do them at random, yeah, it'll be fun. The first night is not just going to be, you know. 
Biden, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, right? I mean, there's going to be a Pete Buttigieg in there, maybe. Or a, I mean, that Tulsi Gabbard, that Tulsi Gabbard, that Tulsi Gabbard, Amy Klobuchar exchange is going to be lit. <laughs> That's great. And when else? But, and when else would John Delaney get to match up with Joe Biden? There you go. No, it's going to be fun. Um, on the political scene, uh, we know that uh, 10 o'clock this morning uh, in the Rose Garden, the president's going to sign this um, spending deal that was passed yesterday by the House and the Senate. And then on top of that, declare an emergency declaration, which already several people, many voices have said is unconstitutional and will be challenged in the Supreme Court. What's the political reality here? Uh, is, is this a – is this obviously – the White House must – think that this is politically good for Donald Trump to basically challenge the challenge the court and defy the Supreme Court. Yes. Congress and court. Yes. Donald Trump likes to and thinks it's politically good for him to uh, take actions of strength. Either he's winning or he's fighting mm-hmm. um, and never backing down. And, and, you know, the last few weeks have seen him. Uh, getting beaten and backing down, uh, and so this is the footing that he would much rather be on from a, in, in a sort of political sense for his base. I'm not sure that the larger public is going to look kindly on this. I don't know. I, it's a it's a question. You know, the what Quinnipiac poll showed that two thirds of the American people oppose an emergency declaration. Right, and a lot of t- as if they know what it is. Right. I mean, let let's see what happens. Right. Let's see whether this actually affects anybody's vote, because if it gets tied up in the courts, um, you know, at some level, you wonder, is the president counting on it being tied up in the courts? Uh, Because then he gets a signal to those base that he's fighting and doing uh, what he wanted to do without actually having the potential public pain of, um, you know, the rejection of Congress, without the potential public pain of moving forward on building a border wall, which requires um, this massive seizure of land from people in Texas, which requires uh, yeah. the transfer of funds from military construction projects that are existing, meaning that there are military bases that aren't going to get built um, uh, or other military installations that aren't going to be built that were on tap to get built right now, um, which means that uh, if I read the Military Construction Emergencies Act correctly, that means that the wall would have to be overseen by the military because uh, in order to use this emergency funding um, for military construction, it has to be something that's overseen by the secretaries of the arm of the military branches. I believe in perpetuity. So now you've got the military operating a wall, yeah, which creates that. a posse comitatus question. That's the yeah. law that, yeah. uh, in theory, prevents the military from operating domestically. That thing's full of holes. Uh, you know, historically, legally, it's it's pretty full of holes, um, but. You would essentially have a militarized zone in the United States. So, is that what the president's hoping to have going on by his next election? Because I don't think that the majority of Americans, and by the way, not just on the left, when you get oh, over no. to the yeah. right uh, and you get a lot of libertarians, I don't think they're really excited about the idea of armed guards patrolling a wall at our southern border. And some people have pointed out 
Um, uh, and when I say armed guards, uh, not just Homeland Security, talking, I'm talking yeah, about, well, yeah. you know, US full regalia uh, military, militarized zone. Right. Um, Speaker Pelosi and others have also pointed out, um, and I know s- several Republican commentators have pointed out, that the Republicans, if they go along with us, are going to rue the day because they've set a precedent where any f- future president, president for his or her pet project could say, well, Congress doesn't want it, won't give me the money for it, hell, I'll just declare an emergency declaration. Certainly that's what Republicans are saying right now. I'm, you know, and maybe the next Democratic president would do that. Um, You know, I'm starting to think that the institution of Congress at some point will say stop. Well, but is, we haven't seen it in the last 50 well, years. No, and this is their – no. I mean, if you look at the parallel for the War Powers Act, right, they didn't do it for a declaration of war. And we thought – Mitch McConnell has been saying for the last six months he's opposed to a declaration of independence. Yesterday he just bowed over and said, I'll support it, right? So you're right. That's what they've been saying. Um, they've shown in some ways that there there are places where they're kind of – pushing back on the president, but they are such small places. Um, now, look, in order to effectively push back on the president from Congress, one of two things has to happen. They either have to feel like they have the support from their constituents to push back against the president, or they have to be willing to lose their jobs. And right now, that's not the risk, case. I would say risk losing. Risk anyhow. losing their yeah. jobs. Um, and then there is a question of, I mean, this in terms of um, Article One of the Constitution doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, I just wanted to point out it did in the last hour or two. I'm sure you've seen this, but I didn't realize this till last night. So uh, that one president who th- threatened to use the um, an emergency declaration was Barack Obama in 29, 2009 for, um, no, sorry, 2014, for the Dreamers. That mm-hmm. if Congress wouldn't give him the Dreamers protection for the Dreamers, then he thought, maybe we'll use an emergency declaration. It was discussed at the White House as a possibility. To protect their being deported. Uh, And one very powerful voice spoke out and said, no, 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 this is wrong. It's a very, very dangerous thing that should be overwritten easily by the Supreme Court because it should absolutely not pass muster in terms of constitutionality and said that if Obama did that, he should be impeached for it. Donald Trump, November 20, 2014. Well, it's interesting that Donald Trump went from being a constitutional scholar to becoming yeah. president of the United States, yeah, right. m- much like Barack Obama. So it's a trend line. There you go. All right. But, it is, I mean, how can he say that about Obama in 2014 and yet do the very same thing today and expect people to believe it's constitutional? Welcome to politics. I mean, this is, right? I mean, yeah. you know, these guys do this all the time. I mean, to the 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 big sale job on Donald Trump is that he's not a conventional politician, because that's what a conventional politician does. Yeah, uh, you know what's what's good for you is not good for me. What's bad for you is not bad for me. Um, I, you know, I think that uh, he doesn't care particularly what the Constitution says. And by the way, it remains to be seen what the courts will say about the Constitution. You know, one of the issues here might be, does Congress have the power to delegate its spending authority 
to the president in the way that it has in these various laws that are affected by the National Emergencies Act or through right. uh, through other legislation. Because they because Congress has basically said to the administration, in these cases, you can essentially appropriate however you want. Well, the Constitution doesn't say that. So right. Right. there's a to me, there's a question about that. I think there's. Um, you know, there's going to be a question about what constitutes military construction, um, the definition of that, and whether this fits in. Building a wall fits into the definition of military construction. There might be a posse comatose. There are hundreds potentially of uh, you know litigation uh, angles on this. Um, all of which, com- basically, not all of which, but a lot of which, will come down to the basic question of: uh, Did Congress? essentially reject Donald Trump's request to build a wall and doesn't have the power to do that because he has been this is my view he has been asking for uh, a 25 billion dollar wall and then a 5.7 billion dollar wall for 234 miles at the most recent request and saying that there is an emergency and Congress's response was to give him 55 miles of fencing to ban him from building a wall mm-hmm. uh, at $1.375 billion. So yeah. basically what they said is, here is the limitation on what you can do at a time when he was call- saying there was an emergency. Right. The Emergencies Act is designed, I have to go back and look at legislative intent, but it's designed so that if there is some sort of act of God or war in between appropriation seasons, that the president can act uh, without Congress having to pass a new appropriations bill to, to fulfill the – it's not that the idea was no. Congress isn't going to recognize a terrorist attack. It's yeah. that they are not going to be able to move money fast enough. Right. So they just appropriated money knowing that he thought there was an emergency and they said, here's your limitation. I, I wonder if a court will look at what he's doing and say to him, no, Congress has the power over the money and they have just addressed your emergency with exactly this right. finite amount of money. My belief is that even the Supreme Roberts Court would would find that, right, that, that this was an end run, if you will, around Article One of the Constitution. But, of course, I sh- should have given up a long time ago. I'm not a legal scholar. You know what I, I No, but I think there, you and I can both see pretty strong legal arguments against what the president is doing. Sure. But, uh, but I do – I want to come back to – because you raised again – that President Trump, and I, I'm not challenging on it at all, I think it's true, that he feels he's got to do this for his base, his base, his base. How the hell important is his base? I mean, he hasn't... I think you have to... He hasn't grown beyond his base since November 2016, has he? I th- No, I think you have to look at what that means to him. I think that the way that he conceives of politics, um, or at least the people around him conceive of politics, is not about expanding the existing, it's not about expanding your share of the existing pie. The idea for them is to get more people who don't vote, who agree with him, out to vote than it is about trying to win over people who already vote. So, He's trying to grow his base. I see. Yeah. Not not to make it larger within the existing set of people who vote, but to make it larger by expanding the set of people who vote only on his side. I mean, that's that's the only. It's not what I get from talking to them. It's the conclusion that you have to draw from watching the behavior. 
and from understanding what they did in the last election, which was to get a lot of people who hadn't voted in a long time uh, to show up and vote. These, you know, overwhelming forces that you saw in, you know, rural Pennsylvania, for instance. But, you know, some of his base um, and culture, Lar Ingram yesterday just said, you know, we're done with you if you sign this deal. Emergency declaration or not, you sign this deal, you know, you're, you, you, you've abandoned us. Right? Well, the, I mean, that's just... A, so even some of, some of his base, I don't like this, his going along with this deal. Well, I mean, that's, uh, it's hard for me to fathom why they're in that position because uh, if he vetoes it, he gets a shutdown, which means, and still doesn't get a wall. Yeah. I, I mean... It, there's no scenario under which it benefits him more to shut down the government um, in hopes of getting a wall and then not declaring an emergency. Or decla- yeah. I mean, I, I, we saw this play out. Okay. Uh, interest of time. I want to jump. Uh, there, there's, we could, I guess what I'm saying is that neither Ann Coulter nor Laura Ingram have any understanding of the legislative process. <laughs> nor does Donald Trump. Um, I want to ask you about, the polit- again, politically, the impact of... Andrew McCabe, former deputy director of the FBI, right? Um, wasn't it his job? I think, yeah, he was yeah. acting director. Yesterday, he's got a new book coming out. Uh, and yesterday, saying that when uh, the, the president fired James Comey, he was so worried about what was happening that he opened this uh, investigation into Donald Trump's meddling with the Russians and set it up so that even if he got fired, it would continue, right? Um what is what political the political impact of I know Donald the last thing Donald Trump wants to be talking about right now is the Robert Mueller investigation right? right this sort of like brings it all back yeah I mean and if you're on Trump's side it's like look the deep state we were right you know we knew we knew what was going on and if oh. you're on the other side you're like thank God there's you know a Boy Scout in there, like ready to to make sure that the government functioned properly. But the I, and I buried the lead, and and he said at the time they were so worried that they considered getting talking to members of the cabinet to invoke the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Yes, to get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, That's and and stunning. and Rosenstein was, uh, you know, in, as as has been reported before, Rosenstein was involved in these conversations, and they talked that, about maybe he would wear a wire. Yes, which talking. is a story that was out there, and people sort of said, "Oh, that can't." be true or whatever and McCabe said yeah, yeah it is true right yeah yeah um yeah uh it's uh, but you know if you're Rosenstein you walk into that job and the first thing that happens is the president sets you up to like fire Comey under false pretenses and put your name on it and then goes out and says I fired him because of Russia and you start wondering like what the heck's going on yeah right I mean in that interview with Lester Holt the president said he fired Comey over Russia right Right, um, and so, and he's you know said the thing to to the Russian ambassador in the Oval Office about that. So, if you're if you're Rosenstein, you've got you've got to be looking around, going, what the hell is going on here? Like something's not on the up and up. And even if it's something isn't on the up and up, you want to find out. Uh, you know, if, even if everything is on the up and up, you you want to do your checking now. Wearing a wire with the president of the United States would be an extraordinary measure. Um, you'd have to, I, you know, before somebody did that, they'd have to be pretty sure of what they were going to get when they talked to the president uh, with a wire. I mean, I, you know, it seems like a pretty bad precedent. You wouldn't do that on a fishing expedition. Well, it came on the on the wake of the president yet again tweeting, which he has for a thousand times, no collusion, right, with the Russians. And here's McCabe who says, yeah, well, we were so worried about 
possible collusion with the Russians that we opened this investigation right after he fired Comey. Yeah. Totally contradicts at least what we were hearing from the White House. But Yeah, I mean, well, obviously McCabe and, and the president don't exactly see eye to eye. And, you know, you know, from what I read, McCabe was none too pleased that the president seemed to, you know, try to intimidate him in early phone calls, you know, mm-hmm. uh, talk to him about his, his wife uh, losing a, an election. I, mean, I think he described one scene as feeling like he'd been, you know, called into like a mob meeting. Um, and so, uh, you know. But politically damaging to Trump, all of this? Not particularly. I think most, most voters aren't paying attention to the McCabe piece of this. Um, and I think those who are have probably made up their minds. Mm-hmm. And, and that, by the way, is the yeah. lens at which we can look through most stories <laughs> that come from the White House. You know, like it's there's so many that come through and so many of them get lost and so many of them get buried that I'm just who knows what sticks anymore. I mean, and, you know, look, there's the, the president's you know strategy is somewhat effective for him, which is no matter what bad stuff I might have done or whatever you think I might have done, uh, I will uh, trash the person accusing me just enough to delegitimize them, <laughs> um, you know, and and so that's the you know that's the difficult part, right? So that you know there's it's, there's enough you know kind of question about McCabe. I think you know not necessarily in anybody specific's mind, but I think broadly there's enough question about McCabe that it reduces um, you know for somebody who's in the middle or not paying that much attention or potentially persuadable. Like it, it, that reduces the credibility a little bit just because there's a sort of because he's a, a subject of controversy. Right. As you said, and that's Donald Trump's style, and it has worked for him um, so far. We're going to, uh, are you going to stick with us? Yeah. Can you? For, uh, John Allen stays here with us, a friend of Bill, for the entire hour, the rest of the next half hour, too. Uh, and the founder of Tarbell, author of Nation on the Take How Big Money Corrupts Our Democracy. Wendell Potter, a good friend, joins us next uh, here around the table. Plus, all of you, don't forget to send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Good to have you with us on this Friday, February 15. Uh, Thanks so much for being part of the program, the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital. Brought to you today by the American Federation of Teachers, just scoring a huge victory out in Denver. Uh, just the latest example of teachers uh, taking to the streets uh, in Kentucky and Arizona and California and winning um, better pay and better working conditions uh, for not only for the teachers but for students as well. Uh, under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten, we salute them. Thank you. Uh, them for their support of the uh, program and the great work they do in the classrooms every day. Uh, John Allen is with us here on this Friday from NBC News as a friend of Bill. Hello, John, again. Hello. And we are joined um, by a, a fellow journalist uh, and uh, who's founder of uh, the journalistic organization Tarbell, Wendell Potter uh, from Philadelphia. Right, all That's the way right, down Bill. this morning on the train from right. Philly. Yep, yeah, Amtrak yep. rolling pretty good. Rolling, it was uh, right on schedule, and uh, it's an easy trip. I can go right by uh, uh, Joe Biden's uh, train <laughs> stop <laughs> every time I come down. Uh, absolutely, the Joe Biden station in Wilmington, Delaware. Right, right, right. yeah, it's down there. Do you spend a lot of time at the? I'm, I'm trying to remember what it's called. The the press club up there, the pen. Oh, and the the pen, uh, pen and pencil. I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's quite a. 
quite a it's off a side street in Philadelphia. You would never know. Yeah, I don't know it. It's kind of a it's kind of a you know. It's kind of place that has like a secret knock. Exactly. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't actually have a secret. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it, you never know it was there, and uh, but it is kind of a secret place. It's sort of like some of the secret societies in South Philly, the the old Italian places. I just drop in next time I'm there. It'll let me in. Come on up. Yeah, know. we'll show you around. Food. And, and Philadelphians are going nuts because the the Seventy Sixers basketball team they're actually good this year. They're good. Oh. They're, they're they're damn good this year. <laughs> they absolutely are. Tell us about Tarbell. You've been here before, but just yeah. for our viewers and listeners who don't know this. Uh, investigative journalism? Yeah, and it's called Tarbell because we're named after Ida Tarbell, one of the most important investigative reporters in American history. She was active in the early 1900s, and her reporting focused really on... Standard Oil, right? Exactly. It was uh, a focus on big corporations, big monopolies, and Standard Oil in particular, which was John D. Rockefeller's big thing. And uh, her reporting was so impactful uh, that it ultimately contributed to the breakup of that company and to very important antitrust and campaign finance laws. So she's our, our guiding spirit. We're doing similar work, focusing on uh, big corporations and special interests and how they use money to influence uh, public opinion, but uh, certainly public policy and elections. And I used to be a part of that work in my old career in the health insurance business. Okay. So um, that, of course, leads me right to asking both of you, your comments on if Ida Tarbell if Ida Tarbell were alive today, would she be going after Amazon? I think she would be going after Amazon for sure because uh, uh, it has uh, you know uh, John D. Rockefeller was the richest man in the world uh, in her era, uh, Jeff Bezos this era, <laughs> and uh, a company like Amazon not all that unlike uh, uh, Standard Oil Company. Well, I mean, Amazon, well to, I mean, to your point, though, she yeah. might be she might be working for Amazon. I mean, <laughs> I mean, some of the finest journalists I know work for Jeff Bezos. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, That's what, right. what journalists yes. are left <laughs> yeah. in this country. Yeah. That's right. You have to separate the Washington. She could Post. be doing both. By the way, it's yeah. true. Right. I mean, uh, this which would like, be very honorable work. And to his, to his credit, to Jeff Bezos' credit, I mean, the Washington yeah. Post does reporting on Amazon, and it does. I've, yes, I've, yes, I have yes. not seen them pull any punches. And yeah. to his credit, I yeah. think uh, he's made. Uh, a lot of improvements at the Washington Post and uh, kept a lot of no people on, it. and they're doing incredible investigative reporting. Absolutely. As is the New York Times. Right. Too. But, I mean, Bezos and the Post is really, I think, they, he brought in a lot more investigative reporters and, and right. increased the budget there. But but so, but so the in New York, as we know yesterday, Amazon um, facing some local opposition to the deal that was made by Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio right. just abruptly said, the hell with it. You know, you don't right. like us, we're pulling out. Yeah, is a uh, pretty, obviously, very significant story that uh, everybody's reporting uh, today because of the resistance from um, uh, progressive politicians, which really have emerged and uh, have a great deal of power, obviously, in New York now. So 25,000 jobs, John, and they're saying, we don't want them. I mean, I, I don't get it. <laughs> I, I mean, I really like. I'm I'm sort of at a loss, yeah. uh, right? I mean, the the complaint is that uh, that the state that the state of New York is going to subsidize the jobs. Uh, the state of New York subsidizes lots of things uh, that I'm sure that the progressive politicians don't like. The jobs from Amazon, um, I, you know, you can argue this one way or the other, but like, I sort of uh, I, I sort of believe that you generally want companies, and particularly companies that aren't you know necessarily going to like say pollute. Your world, I, I, I'm confused by that. Just personally, kind of confused by it. Um, I'm not sure what the reaction is going to be by New Yorkers and whether that's going to be 
positive for Amazon. I mean, if you live in New York, surely it's easy to order things online, but it's also easy to walk down the street and buy things. It's one of the few places in America where it may be just as easy to go to a brick-and-mortar store as it is to order it. I thought, the the, uh, like you, I'm mixed about it. Uh, I think that the conundrum was maybe best expressed in Bill de Blasio himself, who made this deal with Amazon and with Andrew Cuomo, and yet at the same time said he would never buy anything from Amazon because he doesn't like the company. And, I mean, and, but, their, but, and their yeah. practices. So, I mean, yeah. But isn't this, I mean, this, this is like a caricature that the right wing would draw of the left wing, right? That they're Maybe. they're so yeah. tied up in their, well, their sort of uh, avatar politics. So what's the beef, Wendell, <laughs> with Amazon that you... Well, you know, I, on this, I think that uh, when I worked in the insurance industry, my company... Uh, when our lease expired uh, in Philadelphia, the company was looking to see where it might cut a good deal. We were looking across the river in New Jersey, and uh, ultimately the company relocated to, uh, to Connecticut. Uh, but there's well, a, they're an insurance company. They're of an insur- yeah, of course they're up there. <laughs> yeah, right. But the, the point was that you, you try to get as favorable terms and, as, and pay as few taxes as you possibly can. In fact, get uh, some tax considerations. And you make a promise that you'll hire X number of people over X period of time. And often it doesn't materialize. So uh, there are two sides to this. And I think John's right. But I think there's, there should be a, this maybe hopefully will trigger a lot of reporting into what these deals are like and who, who the winners and losers are. But it seemed to me that one of the big issues was the way that this deal was put together, that Cuomo and de Blasio did it with Amazon without involving the local politicians right. from yeah. Queens and Long Island. As we know, John, the boroughs, and you do too, Wendell, yeah. the boroughs there, they, they, they have a certain pride, right? Right. That they count. And and they're these local politicians, and they were not included. And yeah. then they're, they're presented with this deal, with which includes $3 billion in subsidies. Right. And no money for parks or no money for school. And they're worried about the rents. Up. Rents are going to when go they up. swing, they punch you in the nose. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's right. Right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what strikes me though is that Amazon, this great big company, couldn't take a little criticism like that and couldn't or wasn't willing to, right? Get some town meetings going and make their case. That is baffling. Yeah, you're exactly right. Right. I mean, well, uh, they're so big they don't have to. You know, if you were another company that, and you'd done yeah. all this effort to, they'd done all this effort to like locate. You know, you yeah. might dig in and fight for the place that you've decided to go right. and all these benefits. But if you're Amazon, anybody else would love to have you oh, yeah. and your 25,000 yeah. jobs, even if they're only 20,000. Yeah. Philly was in the, in the mix. And uh, I'm sure I don't know exactly what they were offering, but uh, uh, they'll wind up somewhere. Um, they, they, Nashville, by the way, is one of the uh, – it's not talked about or written a lot, but, but they're also uh, locating a lot of jobs in, in Nashville. I, that's where I'm from, Tennessee. And – I uh, was down there recently, and they're, it's, it's, there's somewhat mixed reaction there, too. They're very, I think, much more welcoming of Amazon and the jobs that are coming there. Well, can they but, co-locate that with uh, FedEx? Is FedEx in Nashville? FedEx in Memphis. Oh, Memphis. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the, the contrast to right across the river, Arlington, Roslyn. They renamed right. a town right. for, <laughs> yes, for, yes. for yeah. Amazon, right? Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Where 25, the other 25,000 are going. Yeah. I mean, I know a couple of planning commissioners over there, and they're meeting with Amazon. They're paving I, the way. I'm sure the Washington right. metropolitan area would ha- be happy to have the other 25,000 jobs. I mean, I'm sure 
I, I'm sure that this area would take the whole 50,000 lot yeah. if Amazon wanted yeah. to build a mega headquarters. So would, uh, so would Chicago, as we've learned from uh, uh, the new mayor. Uh, I mean, Mayor uh, Rahm Emanuel and the new governor. Uh, the J. outgoing Pritzker. mayor, Mayor Emanuel. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is interesting. We'll get to, to healthcare. I know we want to talk about too, but uh, there's an article on the front page of, of the uh, New York Times this morning. Um, so we, we know that to a certain respect, the Trump presidency is um, a money-making business for Donald Trump and his family, right? And in fact, there's some lawsuits saying that maybe illegally. Uh, right after the president was uh, elected. Um, <coughs> Eric and Donald Jr., who are running the company, announced they were going to start two new hotel chains in the in the in the country: uh, the Scion Hotels and the American Idea Hotels. And they said they had some thirty, I think it is thirty different uh, deals already lined up uh, all across the country. Um, yesterday, they announced they were scrapping all plans for these two new hotel deals because they say. The political name, because of politics, the Trump name is just not what it used to be worth. Well, I mean, it's hard to market to 37% of the country, right? I mean, if you're, <laughs> right. If you're a hotel chain and, and you know, there's a, a, that much, that many people who simply won't. I mean, Bill de Blasio might not buy from Amazon, but the, the yeah. rest of the country will. Yeah. Right, right. right. And it may not be reaching the clientele, the people who would stay in those hotels, Uh uh, probably today are not Trump supporters. And plus, this comes in the wake of several properties have taking the name Trump off the property. Right. Because yeah. uh, they found out That's it true. was yeah. bad for business. Right. Bad for the neighborhood. So right. which son was Cyan and which one was American Idea? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I'm sure Daddy's not happy with either one of them on that. Right. Um, Medicare for all. Is this the answer? I think it's the answer. I think it's inevitable. I think that uh, uh, there's going to be well, enormous resistance, but uh, at some point, that's what we'll, what's what we're going to have. But I, th- I think the real question is, what is Medicare for all, right? right. Uh, it seems to me that almost every Democratic candidate today, with certain exceptions, is saying, yeah, we're all for, I'm for Medicare for all, but they mean different things by it, perhaps. They do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's there is no common acceptance of what it means uh, uh, by some Democrats anyway. For example, does it mean that private insurance companies no longer exist? Right. Right. Uh, In my book, it does. And I think uh, Senator Sanders would would say that that would be the case as well, too. And the House version of the legislation or the House bill that will be introduced probably later this month, uh, I think uh, Congresswoman Jayapal. I think she would have the same point of view. I do, too, because uh, one of the big problems we have in this country is uh, because we have a multi-payer system. Uh, When you have a lot of insurance companies like the ones that I work for uh, trying to uh, negotiate favorable rates with hospitals and doctors in a given community, none of them has anywhere close to the clout that Medicare has. And so consequently, that's why we have these constantly rising uh, cost of health care, whether we're talking about drugs or a stay in the hospital, uh, because, m- uh, frankly, private uh, insurance companies just cannot control health care costs, nor do they have an interest in getting us to universal coverage. So you, you have that conflict that's built into our system. So first of all, just for a, f- a factual matter, um, Medicare 
today, insurance company, private insurance companies have no role in Medicare. Is that correct? It is not correct, actually, uh, there, for, in two different ways. One, the Medicare program actually contra- contracts with, with the call them carriers, with insurance companies, to do some administrative work. So there is that, and that's always been the case. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of insurance companies in recent years, uh, certainly since the, the Bush administration, uh, have been selling and participating in Medicare Advantage plans, which is a private alternative to traditional Medicare. Uh, it's cost taxpayers a lot more money, uh, but the insurance companies are very, very good at marketing those plans, and I used to be a cheerleader for them in my old job. Uh, but uh, so I know them quite well. Uh, the 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 Medicare for all legislation, uh, actually, it's it would be better to call it expanded and improved Medicare for all because it would expand it to cover everybody, but also improve the coverage and improve the benefits. All right. So, but how about? If I'm a Jeff Bezos, or at least maybe not that wealthy, but pretty wealthy, what if I prefer to buy from a private insurance company? Won't I always have that option? And so to that extent, won't private insurance companies always be in business? Maybe a more limited field, but maybe a more lucrative field? I think think the latter. I think you're absolutely right. I think even if you look in Canada and the UK and other places that have universal coverage, there is a role for insurance companies, and they do exist. In fact, uh, uh, Signal, where I used to work, uh, sold coverage in Europe and has a big presence in China. A lot of these companies have international operations. So to uh, say that private insurance companies no longer exist is just it's not accurate. It's not accurate. And here's the other thing, too. I mean, there's a, a lot of people say, well, look at all those jobs that will go away. It's, it's, it's not accurate because those companies have diversified a lot over the years. They don't resemble uh, the companies that I joined when I joined the industry uh, back in the late 90s. Or, or late 80s, but uh, uh, they have many different divisions that are profit centers that have higher profit margins, actually, than their insurance. So these companies will not go away, even if there is no role for private health insurance. And I think you're right. They, they, they currently sell Medicare supplement policies for people who are in the Medicare program to help cover their out-of-pocket expenses. Uh, there could be a role for them to cover things that would not be covered under Medicare for all uh, even elective procedures like cosmetic surgery. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that that uh, we will see that uh, even if you have Medicare for all with comprehensive benefits, the insurance companies would figure out some way uh, to exist and make some money, <laughs> a yeah, lot yeah, of money. I think you could probably count on that. Yeah. So, John, politically, it's, it, to me, it's, it, it, it's um, almost stunning the way an idea that Bernie Sanders put forth as the heart of his campaign in 2016 and was lampooned by a lot of, or poo-pooed by a lot of establishment Democrats, especially by Hillary Clinton, as being pie in the sky, you're promising too much, this is like too far, whatever. Now it's almost universally talked about, at least, by Democratic candidates. Universally or single-payerly? Well, okay. (laughs) I'm I'm just kidding. In fact, they're calling it now (laughs) Medicare for all, not single-payer, which I think is smart. But then you've got a Sherrod Brown who says, who's a progressive to potential candidate who says, hmm, not so fast. I think that's maybe too ambitious. So what's the right politics here? Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand, Medicare for all. I mean, Kamala all, Harris went even even a little farther and said, let's get rid of the private insurance industry. She did. Which, yeah. Is, yeah. which is a different thing. It is not necessarily the same thing. That is to that's, say you can have – yeah. yeah. I mean, so, like, I think that I, I – um, 
I think that there's a big space right now in the Democratic Party for somebody who is going after the Hillary Clinton vote in the primary. Uh, right now, you've got a lot of people mm-hmm. competing for the Bernie Sanders vote. Yeah, uh, and Bernie Sanders got less than yeah. half of the Hillary Clinton yeah. vote. Now, I don't think that is to say that all of the candidates right now are ignoring every Hillary Clinton voter, but I think the big fight early on has been for the progressive the sort of harder progressive core mm-hmm. and the Bernie Sanders voters. Um, there's, I hate to use the term lane because I think that if yeah, you look yeah, at the candidates, right. they tend okay. to yeah. narrow cast because they think of mm-hmm. lanes. But um, but there is a lane a mile wide uh, for somebody who is not necessarily mm-hmm. doing that and who is looking at the majority of the Democratic voters from the 16 election uh, and I think that Sherrod Brown may be thinking about that. He may be thinking about the cost of Medicare for all. Um, you know, how do you underwrite that versus something that's mixed? About the transition difficulties from a system where you know an employer-based system to something uh, where you have Medicare for all, and you know, can you really promise that up front? I mean, no, but no president would be able to do that mm-hmm. during their presidency. I don't think. I mean, just sort of the the it would be very difficult to do that. It would be very jarring. Uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and then, you know, you've got candidates who are on the sidelines that may try to fill this space in addition to Brown. Uh, Joe Biden may try to fill that space. So, uh, you know, politically, I think we're going to hear a lot more ideas. I, the general cast of the government should be doing more uh, to provide subsidy for health care um, and to try to bring down cost by using uh, the collective power of the people. Uh, I think is one that is popular in democratic circles from well, the center of the you know yeah. edge to the to the left edge. Yeah, no, and I think in that there's a lot of room there uh, in terms of and, uh, variations on a theme, if you will. And healthcare, Wendell, was certainly the winning issue in 2018. Yeah, it was. And it looks like it's going to be the defining issue in 2020. Would you agree? I, I would, and, and for various reasons. One. And I was here a lot during the debate on what became the Affordable Care Act. And it has done some good. You know, obviously, it's brought a lot of people into coverage. Yeah. But it, it's never going to get us to universal coverage. Uh, it's just not built that way. Uh, nor is it built uh, to uh, really have an impact on reducing health care costs. So that's the problem. You've got, uh, and I said at the time, that the Affordable Care Act was the end of the beginning of reform because we've got to go much further. When you look at, at what has been happening, even after the Affordable Care Act was passed, at trends in the industry, you can see that it's not sustainable. There's going to be a point in which uh, increasingly employers are going to say, this is not working. And we're seeing that already. A lot of big employers are bypassing uh, the middleman being the, the insurance industry, contracting if they've got enough employees to make this work uh, with hospitals in a given community. Uh, increasingly, employers are throwing in the towel. And as, as recently as 1999, uh, almost 70% of employers were offering coverage, just now down to 56%. So you've got this steady erosion in the employer-based system, and employees are beginning to wake up, too, to the reality that uh, uh, employers are shifting more of the cost of the premiums to them as well as out-of-pocket costs. So the value, there's a term in the industry uh, that's not very much used, but we used it a lot uh, on conference calls with uh, shareholders and analysts. It's called benefit buy-down, and that means that this is a systematic process of uh, shifting more and more of the cost of insurance and care to uh, workers and their dependents. Uh, it's gradual. 
Uh, but it's almost like putting a pot in a bottle, of, you know, pot of you know, frog in a pot of water, oh. and turning the heat up because uh, yeah. you get little cooked by little, little by little. little by little. But when you look at graphs and see exactly what's been happening, I think uh, employees are also going to be waking up to say, well, "I've been sold a uh, you know a bill of goods here." Right. Be interesting to see how this all plays out. Maybe right. that first debate where we started talking about in June. Everyone uh, will fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? You know, they oh, start. Yeah. Getting, but oh, I do think that the. I mean, but people you, are going to be challenged to, at exactly what you mean to, by Medicare for all. Yeah. And to your point, the last election was about health care, but it was a defensive election in a way for Democrats, where they were talking about. Uh, pre-existing conditions. They were talking about protecting yeah. Yeah. something from being taken yeah. away. It's very different to say, uh, what are you, you know, what is your plan proactively, and what yeah. is it that, what is the cost of doing that plan, not just in dollars, but in the benefits that people already have. For instance, their their private insurance that they might like now. Right, and um, I've been thinking about. Donald Trump saying he cannot go before the public again without building his wall because he promised to do it. He also promised to repeal Obamacare. Yeah. Hello. Right. Yeah. yeah. Not so, building, not repealing. <laughs> <laughs> right. And besides, they've already got their answer to it, right? The Republican response is going to be socialized medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Bingo. That's a, one of the my old job. Again, I, I, I did a lot of, uh, of propagandizing. Out of time. <laughs> got, it, got it. Yeah. But they use that. They've been oh, using yeah. it since 1947. And, Harry sure and John yeah. Dingle, the first. And John Dingle, the first. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, guys. Great conversation. Thanks so much. Wendell's good to see you. Good Thanks to see you, Bill. Take the train down anytime. I appreciate it. And John, I'll let you get back to work and all the breaking news of the day. And we'll see you on stage at the first debate. Hey, folks, have a great, great weekend, and we'll be back here on Monday with all of you. This is The Bill Press Show. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro... Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.